Okay. Here we are, another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. This is episode eight, and we're excited, and I'm excited to have uh, Brent Hansen here today to join us. Welcome. Yes, hi. Um, thanks for having me. Good well, to have I'm, you here. I'm excited. I feel honored to be another Bozo on the Bus. <laughs> you know, when I remember when uh, if I go back, I mean, I know it's been a few years now, but if I go back to the introducing that term and it's, it's a term that's been around AA for a long time it's not necessarily a new term um, but it's one that really I think does represent sort of the idea that we're not special we're not, we're not entitled we're not any different than anyone else and, and kind of the, the message that's, that uh, we promote especially uh, in the communities or the recovery or uh, sober communities that um, you and I venture in and out of um it's the idea that we are somewhat all the same that there's there's really not a difference between us and with that in mind um the the part of the purpose of uh this podcast is to allow people to come in and tell a little bit about their bozoness of course yeah. being, being somewhat of the purpose of it right so um brent glad to have you here thank you um and looking forward to you sharing your story with with our, our listeners today. So um, let's go back. Where do you feel like starting and kind of telling you how, your your story of how you got here? Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey. Um, I guess, um, yeah, I remember, I remember asking you when I first heard that term, uh, just another bozo on the bus. I had to, cause I hadn't heard it before and I had to ask him like, what is that all about? And when you, when you explained it to, to the group, we were in a group setting at the time. He explained it to the group, and it really resonated with me. And I was like, "Yeah, I get, I get that a lot because um, all through, all through growing up, I always was very comparative of myself to other people. What are other people thinking about me, um, and vice versa? And, and I'll get into more of that because I think that's a lot of uh, the root of." of what led me to, to sure. the place I'm at sure. right now. Do you think, but, though, yeah. just before you jump in, and I apologize for No, no, you're fine. In, but do you think that that is more common than not, that a lot of people do feel that way, especially, you know, children and, and young and adolescents, that when they're trying to figure out who they are, especially during adolescence, early adolescence, when identity is beginning to develop, that there they, there is so much comparison going on. And maybe it's increased more recently because of... Um, technology or um, access to so many different forms of media. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I grew up with three stations, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a, few, uh, a few radio stations. But today, growing up in this world, things are so different. So right. the idea of comparison, comparison seems to be stronger or more, more motivated by these certain social constructs. But I wax philosophical. Let, let's, let's, let's get back. <laughs> no, I, would, I definitely agree with, about that, and I do think it's more common than not. And In fact, I find it uh, – I can recognize when, when a person isn't like that, um, and it's, re- it's refreshing, and it's almost like, wow, they're, they're really – and this was even growing up. It was like, wow, they're different. They don't really – they don't care what anybody thinks about them. You know, they don't – you know, they're not concerned about what they're wearing or what they're driving or, or they're just being. You know, they're, they're not uh, – they're not they're not feeling like or they're not trying to portray that they're better than anybody else yeah. you know and that was kind of that always stood out because it was rare <laughs> you know and so i do think it's more common than not 
But uh, for myself, I guess my journey um, started really, I, I think when I look back and, and part of um, one of the principles in your book that you talk about is um, in living a whole uh, steps to living a, a, a wholehearted life is uh, how did I get so disconnected in the first place? Right, yeah. And yeah. so I've looked back on that and it's like, why, how did I get so disconnected in the first place? And I think it really stems from, um, I'm a, I was a, I was a, even growing up as a kid, I always had a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of social anxiety. And I did have this kind of beliefs, the, this belief about myself that whatever I did was not going to be good enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just that I'm a, I kind of almost, I'm a not good enough, you know, what I'm doing. And which is interesting because I've always kind of excelled through, through the different, um, factors in my life. I've, I've never not, not quite, not been good enough, you know, in, in a lot of things. Do you, do you think then, I mean, that's such a common theme we hear. I'm not good enough. Right. Do, do you, in your experience, when you look back now, do you think that's something you learned externally or was there something internally? I mean, and, and maybe it's a combination, of course. I, I guess I don't want to identify it was all external influences, but where do you think that that began? Was it something feedback you were getting about yourself from ex- externally from the outside world, or was it conversations you were internalizing? Right. Um, that's. I, I'm glad you asked that because that's something that that I thought about too. And I think because I was like looking to, to to the external factors. I'm like, well, why? What What was I told? What Who mm-hmm. who, who was making me feel this way? Mm-hmm. And trying to pinpoint what it was. And in reality, it was a combination of things. I always have that. I've always had that internal feeling. I feel like that. You know, it was like that you know whatever i was engaged in might i might not be doing it as as well as i could be or you know um or yeah. as well as someone else maybe i mean is that part of the conversation or or not at that time i'm sorry what was it, what it or, or is not as well as someone else so the right yes exactly comparing. the comparison yeah. yes not yeah. as well as somebody absolutely for sure that was what that was part of it but then also some external um factors as well growing up um I I had an older brother who um, was we were, were were complete opposites. I'm I'm someone that that really that he's he's one of those those people I was extra you know that doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. You know, <laughs> he just does his own thing, and mm-hmm. uh, and he was always very um, you know confident in who he was as a person, regardless of what other people thought you know about mm-hmm. him, and so. Um, that of course, and he was kind of the rebellious one in our family being, being the oldest and, um, growing up and he was the one that my dad was always on to, to do better and to, you know, and, and he was the one that was getting in trouble and not doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing, but because he just didn't care. And I was the one that kind of always tried to follow the rules, Mm -hmm. you know, tried to be the good son, tried to get the good grades. And, uh, so there was that dynamic uh, to it too. And I, growing up in my house, I mean, I, again, when I was looking back to where, what are these external factors that would make me feel this way that, you know, whatever I did wasn't good enough. Um, you know, my dad, uh, and he's gotten a lot better over the years, but he was, he was tough to grow up with. Uh, he, it take, it takes a lot to impress my father, <laughs> you know, he had and some high standards. He had very saying? high standards, yeah, and um, and it was hard to impress him. And so I think, um, and and so I think, just growing up, 
you know, little things, you know, might not, you know, getting that feedback that, well, you get, that could have been done a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know, or you could have done this, you know. But never being told uh, that you're not good enough or never having right. that verbal abuse that a lot of people suffer, you know, or that you're worthless or never that sort of thing. But just almost on a, on a subliminal mess, consciousness, <laughs> sure. I guess, flow of, of, of just growing up in kind of that environment of having a very high achieving, uh, high functioning uh, father and not getting a whole lot of, and, you know, he was, when I was growing up, I mean, he was so focused on, on his career and just providing for our family and supporting our family, mm-hmm. you know. So he wasn't, uh, you know, available um, as a lot of parents are involved. You know, he wasn't, like, sure. intricately involved in my life growing up either. Mm-hmm. So the feedback I was given, getting was on, you know, on the negative side, not a whole lot of positive, you know, reinforcement sure. going on at the same, yeah. at the same so... I think it can stem back to that, but again, I had a great childhood uh, where's, where's growing mom, up. Where's mom at this time? Mom is great. Uh, I mean, <laughs> mom is mom, and uh, yeah, because the messaging focusing from dad, which is which is very common, yeah, especially for you know the young the young men in the family. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of messaging that goes there. It made me think too when you brought that up about how um, sort of certain standards and expectations um, get, get passed down in some ways. Maybe it's intergenerational. Oh, yeah. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a couple parts to this, though. There's, there seemed to be kind of a backlash from that um, over the past couple decades. And I can remember, you know, like um, sort of the, the opposite of that is that everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's a winner, you know. Right. No, nobody, yeah. you know, nobody's left out that kind of thing. Everyone exactly. makes the team and, and all this kind of thing. And that's fine, too. And but I kind of I kind of look back and I go, isn't there somewhere in the middle that this this gets moderated a little bit differently? And we we do talk a lot about moderation, but right. thinking about this too, what, if I'm not good enough, or if or if I don't have any expectations, I, I believe I'm supposed to meet. It kind of creates a no man's land, I think, for um, a lot of young people. And so today, may, maybe things are a little bit different than when you and I grew up. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, let, let's get back. T- tell me about mom. No, I yeah, I definitely agree with that. That there should be some middle ground yeah. there. We've kind of gone from one, you know, almost one extreme to the other side of the, yeah. the other extreme. But no, mom was, uh, yeah, mom is great. Growing up, I and almost, um, I think that's where I get a lot of. And also growing up, I, I'm a sensitive individual. I'm very sensitive to what other people, uh, you know, are feeling. And again, it, that also being sensitive feeds that. Uh, that feeling of uh, I don't I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to I hope nobody's judging me or no you know mm-hmm. I'm sensitive to to what other people think about me sure. essentially yes. that's what I was trying to say is definitely always been very cognizant of of what other people think about me and caring about mm-hmm. that and being sensitive in that way but also being very sensitive about other people's feelings and how other people are doing and I the, think and the I empathic out, or the the empath the empathy of it yeah, yeah and sure. that definitely comes from mom and growing up with with mom it was almost she was almost kind of the opposite of my dad that it was like yeah whatever you do is okay you know you're doing your best you know what i mean that used to be frustrating too it's like no i want to be the best you know what i mean <laughs> I thank you mom best. but i'm not going to do my best yeah, exactly. I yeah, I don't want to do my best. I want to be the best. But she's she was always very supportive and um uh growing up and and again, I I did have a great childhood. I don't think I think there were some external factors uh in my upbringing that definitely led me to kind of have a a low 
self-confidence and a, and a feeling of not being good enough. And, uh, and again, I, I have a lot of anxiety and, I, and I've had it ever since I was little, you know, I remember worrying about the cold war and is Russia going to, you know, nuke us at, you know, as like, like an eight year old and being, you know, scared about that. And just, you know, tons of anxiety issues. And did, did you do those? Uh, I can remember being in, um, elementary school and, and, and having to get under our desks. I don't know right. if you ever did anything. No, like we didn't that. have no, to do anything did, like that. But, yeah. But. Of course that was the sixties and a, right. a little bit different time maybe. Um, but I can remember that, you know, if there was, if there's the thought practicing for drills of a uh, nuclear attack, what that would be. I mean, we, we, and it's kind of come back around again. So, you know, the, what I can remember doing it back then. And then people kind of forgot about it. We just, went into sort of this quiet, you know, phase between countries and, um, you know, uh, and and the threats seem to diminish. And then all of a sudden now, because of political forces, you know, all of a sudden that gets heightened again because it happened again. It happened in Hawaii last month. Right. I know. Exactly. And and, and so that, you know, people are freaking out and and rightly so, because all of a sudden, you know the the drill is real, yeah. and, and it's that that kind of drill has come back. And of course, we have that in schools now for different reasons, right? Um, today, too. But anyway, yeah. So a lot a lot of anxiety, and uh, and I found that as I got older, uh, what would help with that anxiety was, of course, would be alcohol. <laughs> yeah, you know, my friend, alcohol. That um, my friend. Yeah, uh, a close you know that was, um, and that really, yeah, very. <laughs> And uh, that was really what kind of started off my drinking is I would really drink uh, for to relieve social anxiety. You know what I mean? And that's where it started. And it started back in high school and it progressed uh, when I went to college. And, you know, I found that, you know, when I was in a group of people and feeling feeling like I might be being judged or I, I'm going to have to engage in this conversation, I don't want to say anything stupid because I don't want them – I don't want to come across. And that's another big issue I have is like I really don't like to be – hyperverbal because I'm like, you're going to say something dumb. You know, you're, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to come across as this well put together person, you know, and, and you're going to say something stupid. And that's why the concept of then just another boat yeah, on the bus right. comes in. But you, you had, you, it, it, there's a, there's a bridge to get, there's a bridge to go over, to go from the worry or the concern or the paranoia of looking stupid to just accepting that there are times in my life that I am going to yeah. look and sound stupid. Oh, yeah, exactly. Fact, in my case, it's daily. That's <laughs> <No. laughs> the listeners know. Oh, yeah, it's so... <laughs> And so if I didn't want to, if I didn't want to, uh, say anything stupid, uh, the best way to not to be talking would be to be drinking. You know, you can't talk when you're drinking. Right. (laughs) And, uh, so that, that kind of, that, that kind of started it off. And as I continued to progress through college, um, and always, you know, striving to, 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 to do better than what I was, what I was doing at the time, um, I ended up during college. I was work. My dad, he is an accountant and had his own CPA firm, and I worked for his CPA firm while I was in college, mm. um, the whole time. And um, he and I, 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 I was pursuing my degree in accounting too because I knew I always wanted to have a business background mm-hmm. in case whatever I wanted to do. But my heart had always been in the medical science. I always real growing up. I always felt like I wanted to be a doctor. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I had a great experience one time when I went to a, a dentist when I was about, uh, 20, 
two years old and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a dentist, you know, but I'm studying accounting at the U. And so what do you do? And it's like, well, I can get my accounting degree, take my, um, you know, pre-med, you know, quote pre-med, which is the same as for pre-dental mm -hmm. requisites and graduate with a degree in accounting and go to dental school. So that's what I did. And all along with the support of, I met my ex-wife in college um, and she was very much like my father, which is interesting, you know, very driven, um, a little bit more compassionate uh, at times for sure, but very driven in the same way. And she really, she really pushed me. Like when I met her, I was just kind of floating through college, you know, and wasn't, and cause I'd always excelled in high school without any effort at all hardly you know it wasn't that big of sure. a deal and then i got to college and i'm like holy shit this this is hard i mean this is going to be this is going to take some work right you're not quite as smart as as you <laughs> thought you were this natural intelligence that you felt like you've been blessed with yeah, right. doesn't really exist right you got you're going to have to work for this oh you're going to have to do some work i got to yeah, do some exactly. work yeah exactly i'm going to have to do some work and the um you know, but it's and then of course being a freshman in college, you know, you're you're out on your own. You're ha you're you are going to parties. You are having fun, and so that all studies take a take a hit there too. But then, so I met my my ex wife uh, in college, and she really helped me turn me or got me refocused, got me back she, on the right track. You know, the, you know, I've always, I've heard this for so long, and I and I've believed it up to a, a certain point, um, having a strong counseling, you know, and, and psychology background that. The, the the notion that we marry our parents, you know. Right. I mean, first of all, we turn out like them a little bit, but we marry someone like them as well. Right. Yeah. And and and, the, and your story kind of beckons or calls to that that uh, theory or hypothesis that there is something you oh, notice yeah. the, the the similarity because we're comfortable yeah. with uh, well for the most part. Um, I mean, there are obviously times that you know we we get <laughs> relationships that aren't healthy for us that can remind us of a parent too. But in this case. She sort of brought brought you some of the strengths that your father had as far as maybe discipline and, right. and focus and drive those kinds of and, things. Yeah, drive and motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so she really helped me get back on track. And, um, and I really buckled down. And I was working, you know, 30 to 35 hours per week, going to school full time and really doing well in school because I needed to do well in order to get into dental school, mm -hmm. you know. And that all that all happened, you know, that transpired. I succeeded, uh, graduated, and got accepted to the University of Maryland Dental School. We didn't have a dental school here in Utah at the time, so mm -hmm. you had to go out of state. Right. And um, and at the time, that time, actually, my wife had um, gone. She she graduated with her master's in accounting and uh, had gotten a job back in so Washington, D.C. really a lot like your father. I'm telling you, yeah. And, <laughs> By the um, way, about what, when was this approximately? That, because there, there is a dental school now, so I'm thinking, when did you graduate that, you know? Oh, yeah, so I graduated from college in 98, okay. 1998, yeah. Okay. And, um, and so my, uh, I'll call it, I, can, I think I can say Becky. Yeah, she wouldn't mind. So Becky was my ex-wife. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> so, anyways, because I hate, I keep, I keep having to say ex-wife, ex-wife. Because yeah. I mean, but yeah, her name's Becky, and so Becky. Well, you're saying some really supportive and, and caring, and well, loving yeah. things about her right now. So I, I mean, no, I definitely, yeah, yeah. She was, she was one of the good ones, but we can get into that later too. Okay. Um, but so Becky had gotten a job back east, and so she had moved back there. So I moved back there too. Um, 
to just oh to study for the 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 pre-dental exam essentially right. so i went back there and i worked for a year out there and in, in doing dental assisting and stuff and studying for the the entrance exam for dental school and so i was living back east when i did get accepted to the university of maryland and i went there for dental school and and again same and, and through dental school that those same sort of um I, I don't know what you want to call them i guess issues issues yeah the anxiety those feelings of not being good enough those feelings of uh, am I going to put my foot in my mouth every time I open right. it? You know that just kept it just kept getting amplified. You right. know, the the primary issues or problems that you were actually dealing with. I mean, clinically we call that like our pathology. But what what you're you're talking about is is what you're uh, you're not focusing as much on the symptomology, which maybe is the alcohol, but right. the actual un- underlying issues that you were dealing with or struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, it was the alcohol was just a means to medicate these symptoms, you mm-hmm. know, and it just and it conti- so it continued to intensify mo- mostly because I know that people, uh, you know, dentists can be kind of the, the the butt of a lot of jokes, and people, you know, oh, you're just and they get compared a lot to doctors. Oh, you're just a dentist, you know, you're not a doctor or whatever. But I will tell you what, I've been, I actually went through medical, because by then I went on and I'll explain that later too, but I went through medical school myself as well. And dental school is in a lot, in a lot areas, a lot more difficult and challenging. So not only was I having this, uh, these issues, then I, then I stepped my game up essentially, right? I'm not going to be an accountant anymore. Now I'm going to have to go practice dentistry and Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to learn the trade and the skills Mm -hmm. and gain all this knowledge of dentistry. So that just even intensifies that that um the need to perform and the feeling of like am i going to be able to perform sure you know of course and so it just kept i I just kept ramping up my expectations and 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 in my life Hmm. and i got to dental school and i ended up uh excelling you know i did great um in in and and through dental school i i well, but even before dental school, I had been I got exposed because I was working with an with an oral surgeon here in Salt Lake in his office, and that's once I decided I wanted to go to dental school, I wanted to get a job in a in a, in an off in an office to get experience, mm-hmm. and so I ended up getting this job with this oral surgeon, and I really enjoyed what he was doing. So I always in the back of my mind thought, man, that'd be really cool to do. But go to dental school first and see what happens. Sure. Yeah. And then once I got to dental school, I decided that's what I want to do. I want to pursue oral surgery. So once again, just really stepping up my game. It's not like, oh, I'm going to graduate dental school and go off and practice general dentistry. Now I'm going to get more training. You know, now uh-huh. I want to get more training. And all through dental school, again, because dental school is was very challenging and um, stressful, what we did on the weekends was to we blow off steam. So the alcohol consumption definitely increased uh-huh. as a way of self-medicating. Uh, and just, and again, just partying and socializing with my, my, uh, my, my colleagues in dental school, you know, that's what we did on the weekend. We Mm -hmm. would, we would go out to the bars in Baltimore and, uh, and just tear it up, you know? Um, and so that amplified the drinking too. And so it became almost more of a, it it started out, you know, medicating the symptoms and then, um, then it started becoming a part of my life, part Mm -hmm. of my social life. It got integrated into what you do. You know, that's what you do. You work and then you drink. Instead of being a a weekend. But this, so you, you were saying that this was mainly weekends. Yeah. You're going out on the weekends because your focus during the week was really to apply yourself in school. Right. And with your studies and and practice. Okay. Exactly. And so uh, 
you know, dental school went well. Ended up, you know, graduating at the top of my class. Uh, got accepted to go to one of the more uh, well well known. Um, you know, one could argue the best oral surgery program in the country, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but definitely I would, you know, it's hard to put, qualify that, but definitely top five, you know, oral <laughs> surgery, you know, programs yeah, in the you, country, you know, you, it's uh, obvious. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. So, but if anybody listens to this, they'll be like, oh, that's, that's bullshit. That's not true. <laughs> My, you know, but whatever. But you know, anyways, it was it was a well known oral surgery program in Dallas um, at Parkland Memorial Hospital, and uh, and so after dental school, moved to Dallas. And uh-huh. at this time, I hadn't gotten married yet. Me and Becky were still together. We'd lived together for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we started living together when when I moved back east, and um, and so we we moved to Dallas. We bought a house, and we're living there. And I start residency, and then once again, um, those. My career challenges keep getting escalated, and yet I keep, I still have not found that self confidence and that self, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think I guess self confidence, or I, it was a story that I I was telling myself that I'm I'm not good enough, or I'm never going to be able to do that. That's what exactly what I was hearing is that yeah. I saw I was looking at little Brent, I mean young Brent, sorry, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> young Brent. You know, with the dealing with those those early issues that you know of comparing yourself to other people and like we all do, and, mm-hmm. or something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough, or why why don't I do this? And that's exactly what it sounded like. Is that when you now that you are ready to go and actually put all this together, everything mm-hmm. that you had been working towards for you know years now, yeah, and something which was a. In, in some ways, I mean, your story of walk, you know, being in a dentist's office at, I think you said, 22 or 23, and going and having a moment. It was a great moment in a dentist's office, which a lot of people joke about, <laughs> know, right? right? But you go, this is what I want to do. I mean, this is, feels yeah. like my, a, a life purpose in a way, you know? Yeah, it just seems so cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, I gravitated towards it. And, and then, then all of a sudden, these, this Am I Enough is coming back. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's a toxic. I mean, th- this is where the, some of that toxicity and the shame comes in, right? That Absolutely. often um, just fuels any type of addictive behavior or um, actions that we have. Right. Yeah. yeah ab- absolutely. And it was just that. How? How am I? I kept telling. I was telling myself a story that I don't deserve to be in this place. I'm surrounded oh. by all these great. Uh, medical providers and, and mm-hmm. dental providers, and and do I deserve to be here? Why, you know, little, you know, I can just I always just had kind of a low self um, image or image. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Low self image of myself, mm-hmm. where I had done the work, I had earned the right to yes, be there. You did. Yet yeah. I still felt like I didn't didn't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Almost. So you I'm going to use this word because this is. A big. This is like to me like one of the cruxes of addiction, and addiction to anything. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it is, but the idea of belonging. Yeah. And if I don't feel I belong someplace, then that kind of fuels that awkwardness and the and maybe the doubts and the fears or the shame that sort of drive 
to want to change those feelings because so much anxiety this is a common thread of all everyone that's 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 done this podcast up to this point has struggled with this certain level of anxiety in their life right. and that feeling of, of of feeling disconnected right yeah <laughs> and you and i've talked about this a lot the disconnection piece that that not feeling okay in my own skin not feeling okay or enough and then all the toxic shame and fear-based beliefs begin to take hold. And then the addictions seem to take hold. And right. all of a sudden, I feel lost. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is exactly what happened. Um, telling myself that um, I didn't belong, that only, that only further made me isolate, mm-hmm. which uh, again, and then, and then again, the, also the, the day-to-day stressors with going through residency uh, increased as well, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, and so now I have more stress, still having this feeling of not belonging, not not that I didn't deserve to be there, not being good enough, and having self doubt that I'm going to be able to perform this. Am I really uh. going to be able to pull this off? You know, and and yet though all along I'm doing it, but not recognizing that hey, you're you're doing you're doing okay, but at the end of the day, the alcohol started. It wasn't just weekends anymore. Now it was like at the end of the day. I gotta wind. I'm on the way home from the hospital. I'm gonna. I gotta have a couple of beers to wind down, you mm-hmm. know. And and so that started self medicating that way. And then again, it just it, it continued. To, the cycle snowballed, and mm-hmm. you know, we can go. You know, I could spend a long time doing an exact timeline of well, and then this <laughs> happened, and then this. Happened. Uh-huh. But you know, any sh- short short story is that it snowballed on me to where it got to the point that I was relying. I became alcohol dependent, uh-huh. and I was relying on the alcohol just to function. Um, when I was in residency and that really came and I, I think that really started when, uh, cause part of my residency is we had to do a year of general surgery. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing a year of general surgery and we're on trauma rotations and emergency general surgery rotations where I, where I was working 80 hours a week at the hospital, oh you know, yeah. and on call every third night, you know, right. so very rigorous, um, and, and, uh, and very stressful and being put in situations that very high stress. And when you already don't have that confidence, uh-huh. it just amplifies that stress and anxiety, sure. you know? And again, um, I was able to I was able to accomplish everything I needed to, but at the same time, it just took its toll on my psyche. Right. So at the end of the day, it was the alcohol that would be there waiting for me, hmm. and I got alcohol dependent and um, ended up um, reaching out to the hospital that I was working at. Well, actually, I got a complaint. Um, let's be vulnerable and honest, right? Please. I sh- so I showed up at I showed up at uh, at the hospital one time and I had to go over uh, to a private clinic of one of our attendings to help out mm-hmm. and one of the nurses thought she smelled alcohol mm-hmm. on me mm-hmm. and she probably did because of the, you know I was drinking a lot you mm. know sure. and it wasn't uh, you know necessarily drinking before work but the night before or yeah. whatever yeah. and it's still for, having alcohol in your system this, yeah this, exactly yeah. and yeah. yeah still having alcohol in the system and um, and so I showed up first thing in the morning she says she smells alcohol on me so that prompted her to tell my attending my attending called me in of course, you know, he had to report that to the hospital mm-hmm. committee. The hospital committee calls me in and they ask me, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I do. I think I have a problem. Mm-hmm. They said, okay, well, we need to get you some treatment, mm-hmm. you know. And so there was this cycle of me going uh, in and out of some treatments while I was doing residency. Mm-hmm. 
and <laughs> and being and now that I was on the hospital's radar, mm-hmm. I was having to get drug tested every third day. You know, like I'd just get random pages coming in and pee, you know, to test you for make sure you're, right. you're clean, make right? Make sure you're clean, sure. Because, you know, which makes sense. You know, you're in charge of taking care of other people. They don't want you being intoxicated. And so well, that well, even fueled the anxiety, you know? I mean, that was just, now I'm on the radar. And now, and again, not not willing to be vulnerable and telling people that I have a problem, uh-huh. you know what I mean? And trying to hide it from everybody. Right. And that just fueled it too. And it got to the point where I was just not willing to stop drinking mm-hmm. in the hospital basic because I was my you know I was testing positive, going to treatment, coming back, not completing treatment, testing positive, and it just and the hospital just just basically said we've had enough mm-hmm. you know and I basically got fired my f- you know five and a half well five well five years into a six year residency. Oh my! So almost there to the finish line, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. But you couldn't. There's you weren't able to moderate your drinking in any way at that point. Even though you were, you were. No. What did treatment look like when you said I was in and out of treatment? Yeah. What What is what is what was what that? Did that counseling? Look like? What were you supposed yeah. to do? Meetings. I mean, what? Well, was... the first. The, yeah, the first time I they sent me to a detox. I went to a detox for like four days, and then and then that was it. And then I was supposed to just not. <laughs> that drink. was treatment. I was just yeah, that was treatment. Right. I was just supposed to detox and not drink, mm-hmm. and that didn't last long, of course. <laughs> Because I just I never don't do drugs. I know exactly. That's exactly what it was. Okay, you're you're clean now. Don't do it. So and then and that lasted for maybe three weeks. And of course, I tested positive again for alcohol. Because of course, I didn't stop drinking. And that's when they sent me to a 30 day program in Dallas or in in Texas. I went to a place outside of Texas for 30 days. Got out of 30 day residential treatment program. Came back. Did well again uh, for uh, about oh, I think that stent. Uh, yeah, I did. Oh, and I was also doing some IOP too after that, after that residential treatment, I was doing IOP, but I didn't, I never stopped drinking. I was just trying to game the system. Sure. You know, I would like, okay, I got tested today, which means they're not going to test me tomorrow. So I'm, you know, I'm good to go tonight. Uh I can drink tonight. You know what I mean? I was just, I never really stopped drinking. And the reason why I didn't is because I didn't know how to, uh, not drink to, to, to calm this anxiety and this overwhelming feeling of, of fear and, and again, and now the shame and guilt pulp comes in. Now you're the guy that's, you're the resident that's having to go to treatment for alcoholism. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? And that shame and guilt comes back. It starts to play, feed into it. Right, right. And I just didn't know how to get out of that cycle. I mean, I was just stuck in it. And it got to the point too, where after I'd gotten fired, um, I, I then became, that's when really the, well, even before then, it got to the point where I was getting physically, I was physically dependent on it too, not just psychologically, mm-hmm. but physically it, it took a hold of me where you wake up in the morning and you feel, you know, so shitty that you, but you, hey, I know how to get rid of this shitty feeling. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, just have a couple beers. You know what I mean? Hair and that's the dog, how I was getting, hair of the dog. Hair of the dog. That's how I was getting through my day essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's all. My, you know, weekend drinking that then became daily drinking, then became morning drinking, became all day drinking, essentially. Uh And so, yeah, I got, um, uh, I ended up getting fired from my residency. That's when my wife uh, at the time, Becky, said she'd had enough and she had been, she had been very supportive the whole time with me trying to get, you know, get, uh, to get me through this and, and help me get help. 
but again, it, it was it was really a classic, uh, you know, fixer saboteur relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I really that really resonates with me, is that she was being the fixer and I was the saboteur in the mm-hmm. relationship, and uh, but she being healthy enough <laughs> of a person. And being able to set that boundary that I have had enough of this, I'm not. This is not how I'm going to live my life. You know, I'm not going to continue to take care of this guy. You know what I mean? There's a fascinating component to this, Brent. That though, that's. I mean, and and maybe maybe this will. I'm not trying to. You know, this is not a feel good moment, but it's 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 it's, <laughs> it, it, it kind of is because. Yeah. I mean, congratulations, and I, we've talked about this, and you know, you've been in, we've been in group settings and yeah. and had people share, but you picked somebody healthy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that that's really what's cool is you pick someone that knew how to set boundaries with you, mm-hmm. um, and maybe maybe you know, you know maybe not right out, out the gate, but they did have enough experience and and enough understanding of themselves that when it you know it came that time that they knew that enough was enough. Yeah, and that's you know indicative of of having some some healthy attachment because quite often people that struggle with alcohol especially have you know avoided or disorganized attachment to um you know to a primary caretaker in their life which then comes out in their in their primary relationships but somewhere along the way you you made some healthy choices here you know right. because somebody did did set a boundary and did follow through on that so just just to yeah. kind of be aware of of that yeah, and that's yeah. and that's why I think when I referred to, to her earlier, I said uh, she's one of the good ones, <laughs> you know, because she was, um, yes. yeah, and 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 she was, and and although although our uh, yeah, and our relationship was definitely uh, more positive than negative for sure, but it, but it, it did it did end negatively, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, at that time, I moved back home, uh, back to Salt Lake City. Because uh, she she basically said I'm done I've had enough of it We're, we need to get a divorce and so I left uh, the house in Dallas and moved back to Salt Lake and basically didn't do much uh, for a long time just fed my addiction hmm. I had um, and and one when I said I was in and out of treatment also while I was in residency I didn't just do the residential treatment in in Texas I also came back to Utah for a stent for a 30 day treatment stay uh-huh. at a at a facility here in Utah. Uh-huh. And while I was at that facility, I met a I met a girl, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and we had had you know we'd kept in touch a little bit uh-huh. um, this whole time. And so when I, when I got divorced and I moved back um, to Utah, I looked her up, and of course she had been in she she also had bit relapsed and was mm-hmm. still in her addiction, and I was in my addiction, and so we got together and we thought it would be great to be in addiction together <laughs> so you you had a rehab romance i, I did yeah it, well, it was it was, and they always said that you know you always hear that oh that's the worst thing ever to happen, and of course you tell yourself, what the fuck do you know you know whatever we're, we're gonna be different. we're different we're different right yeah. I mean, but we did have a pretty good run, I mean five years <laughs> you but, did uh I mean so. Yeah, but again, it was uh, again the, the 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 relationship roles almost started to reverse though. So we again we were we were hanging out. We were just both in our addiction. Explain that part. The relationship roles. Oh, uh, I was going to say the fixer and the saboteur. For me, my relationship changed to where now I became the fixer because I decided I needed to get sober. Right. I had had an, an event where. Um, uh, they said it was alcohol poisoning, but I don't know how it would have been alcohol poisoning. It had to have been alcohol withdrawal. Uh-huh. But anyways, I passed out at my mom's house. Uh-huh. I was like, I wasn't feeling good all day. 
and basically ended up collapsing and she couldn't revive me and it wasn't because I was intoxicated because I hadn't drank that day because I felt so shitty <laughs> anyways I got carted off to Altaview Hospital with paramedics wound up in the ICU went through alcohol detox and the whole nine yards uh -huh. and so um, got out of the hospital at that time I said alright enough's enough that was really that event that told me that that was it I needed to stop drinking uh -huh. you know I mean I'm killing my family here my, you know I'm destroying my mom I'm destroying my, my health uh -huh. Nothing is working in my life. I got to stop this. So that's when I stopped. And so, and I was still seeing um, this individual at the time too, but I had stopped. And so I, I was starting to get, get healthy and sober and, and she was continuing to, to, to not be sober. And uh, so that's when the relationship roles changed from me being the saboteur yeah. Uh, to the fixer, right? So I was the fixer, and I, 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 I do love this this dynamic of how easy it is to flow back to oh, yeah. these different roles to go from a place of um, needing needing to be kind of cared for or um, needing someone to or, or enabled um, to being the enabler or being the caretaker. Right. In this case, uh, that that role of the caretaker is. You know, instead of being the caregiver and, and uh, the idea of I, I, I do the caretaker does things for people that they should do themselves, whereas the caregiver does things for people that can't do things for themselves. So that that dynamic of that role, and it really the the separation between those is so thin sometimes right. that it's just it flows back and forth so quickly. So I I love that that you know you shared your experience of of, of that changing that role that I went pretty quickly from being a saboteur mm -hmm. to being to being a fixer. To being and, a fixer. And and the other part of this though I, I wanted to go back and I, I <clears throat> this this seems like a moment to to ask you about this though because after everything that happened in Dallas and, and, and all the, and the loss associated with right. that, it's, I mean, hearing you talk about, it, I feel a sense of loss. Oh yeah. Um, and, and, and it, it almost feels like when you, you left, you were, and I, I may be wrong here, but it just, it felt as you're telling the story, I'm feeling this, almost this sense of deep grief, you know, I mean, something you had worked at for so long oh, yeah. and you had been on this track for so long and then you had it almost like to admit some kind of defeat in some way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that 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 feels a little bit of a heartache there, you know. And yeah. And and so that I mean, and we know that grief is often one of the things that that's self medicated. Oh, yeah. A lot. So that you would come back to Utah and then look for a relationship and and begin to use again or oh, yeah. or continue to use. Yeah. Makes yeah, makes complete continue. sense to me anyway because yeah. of of a, a a deep experience of grief and loss from. All yeah. of this, the, the marriage, the, the, the residency, yeah. all the you know, schooling, all, of that, all the right? training. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that definitely fueled, uh, fueled my drinking for mm -hmm. sure, is that I did feel like I'd lost pretty much everything, mm -hmm. you know, uh, everything I'd worked for. And this, that, <laughs> those underlying, all, all through growing up, those, those, those underlying feelings of not being good enough, mm -hmm. now I actually had proof, I had evidence. <laughs> That see, I wasn't see take right a here. Look here yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I wasn't good enough. Yeah, right. I, I yeah, it was a failure for me. It really was. It was a failure and mm -hmm. um tough. Yeah, very very tough. And it took yeah. No, I'm not yeah. just another bozo on the bus. I am <laughs> yeah. actually a failure. Okay. Everyone yeah, notice exactly. this yeah. is failure, this is not a bozoness. Right. Which exactly. is the humbleness, which is we we kind of lose that that mm -hmm. humbleness when we believe we're a failure and that's 
that again, the, the shame feeds the addiction. So. Right, yeah, absolutely. Definitely went into a lot of shame and definitely wanted to isolate from anybody that knew me throughout my, you know, throughout dental school, throughout my career, throughout my residency. Mm-hmm. I didn't, anybody at all that I'd even known high school, anything, because they would say, what did you do? And oh, I got, well, you know, I did this and this and this and I got fired, you know, at the very end. I got divorced. Uh-huh. I'm a loser. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's how I, so I basically isolated myself off except for me and this one individual who I reconnected with. And, and again, um, so got, uh, after the, after the trip to the hospital there, I mustered about 18 months of sobriety. I continued in this relationship where she continued to use. And I was, I was again, the fixer of the relationship and, um, 18 months. And so I was able to muster together 18 months of sobriety, not doing anything, just Uh living and not drinking, just, you know, white knuckling, if you will, quote unquote, didn't didn't do any treatment, didn't do anything until uh, and then Thanksgiving came along and I thought, hey, I've got 18 months, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm, I'm good. good, I got this, I got this, I can handle this. So thought I could handle a couple of drinks and uh, you know that was not the case. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. I could, I could have just case. one. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I thought I mean, you you yeah. could you could have just one, but you could you, you could, but yes, you didn't. But I right? didn't. No, yeah. I chose to go right back into almost almost instantaneously drinking just as much as I did before I got so you know before the eighteen months. When I mean, you say instantaneously, within that, like three days, really, really, okay. it was like I mean that after that first, after that one drink <clears throat> I was going <throat> to have that one or two drinks I was going to have, uh-huh. I think I probably that night had eight. You know what I mean? Oh it just it was like immediately almost back into like this is great. This is you know like, yeah this is. Well, eight drinks after eighteen months. That, yeah, that's that's you were you were intoxicated. Oh yeah, and so and then you wake up the next morning. You're not feeling very good. You know how to fix that, you know. <laughs> and it just started the cycle again, you know. And this went on for about a month, a uh, month and a half almost. And it got to the point where I knew I could not, and 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 I knew I couldn't continue on, you know, doing this anymore. And that's when I went to, I just made the decision to go to detox, went to detox at the U, uh, I knew I needed to do something. Cause obviously for 18 months I stayed sober, but I didn't do anything, any work. And so I ended up relapsing because I had the great idea that I could do it. And so I need, I knew I needed to do something. I needed to get into something that would hold me accountable, help me along. You know what I mean? Is what I, it was the thought process at the time. So I ended up in, you know, signing up for, for IOP out of detox and and I've been sober ever since since then and it's been um two two year a little over two years two years and two months wow ish yeah so you know 26 months and and I thought <laughs> and I thought that I just I don't know why I signed up for IOP because I oh I know well I know why because I was like I've been to residential programs before they don't work I mean I've been to two of them they <laughs> they, they, they didn't do anything for me uh-huh. well it's I didn't do anything for me it's uh-huh. not the programs right, essentially right. the programs were there I didn't do anything for me right. and I so I got into a program that held me accountable and uh, got me connected with with other people and it was a program that allowed me to learn about being honest and being vulnerable and it's okay to share what you're feeling mm-hmm. and yeah you're going to say stuff and come across like an idiot but you'll get called out on it but you're going to be loved for it you know uh-huh. what i mean it, and you're going to learn and grow from it and again um 
it was that component of of just doing the work of recovery, you know, doing some self-evaluation and trying to get to the root of why it is I feel like I need to go through life uh, intoxicated, right. you know, why is that it, and and making some changes, and part of those changes were is I did I did set a boundary with with the the girl I was in the relationship with and said, look, I'm going to be sober, and if you can't stay sober, if you can't be sober, then I can't continue this relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a boundary; it's not working for right. me. Right. And and so that relationship. Uh, and so, you know, she wasn't, she, she didn't stay sober. And so I said, well, okay, I mean, that's it. We can't, we can't continue this intimate relationship together. We can still be friends. Right. Um, and I'm here to support you. And, but you know, we're, you know, we're not. And I, and, and thus ended the, the, my role as the fixer. Did, did you notice though? I, I mean, I mean, that's, that's a powerful experience to, to go through, you know, I believe it's a powerful experience based upon um, switching these roles out through different various times in my life as well, mm-hmm. um, especially with kids. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I yeah. can, don't worry, I'll fix it. Right. Yeah, which and sometimes doesn't help the kids always. But right. this this idea of... I know when I need to do something really different that, I, that, yeah. that I'm perpetuating the problem by staying in an unhealthy relationship. And, and it's not the other person that's the problem, which is so easy to do, right? Right. See them as the problem because the problem is what I do in the relationship because either I, whether I choose to stay in one that's unhealthy or, or not supportive or in the way in which I am behaving or acting towards the person in that relationship. And that seems to be what, you know, differentiates, you know, sort of the, the being healthy and being open and being vulnerable in a relationship, mm-hmm. but also being able to learn to set boundaries and and maintain them. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to, to set the boundaries, but if I don't maintain them, then you know, it's just like, well, then we, we move the goalpost, so to speak. I mean, the right. sports analogy. Oh, know. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You just continue to perpetuate the fixing. Yeah. But yeah, relate and and so relationships and and that that that, that dynamic and uh-huh. yeah, it was it was very and that was very good for me and and again it was hard it was a it was a loss of a relationship that was five years in the making, but again it wasn't a it wasn't a healthy relationship yeah. it wasn't for me and it wasn't for her at the time either so, um, I was re- in 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 regards to relationships something that really I read recently that really really kind of resonated for me and what I'm going to look for moving forward in, 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 in looking in relationships is in, in that, in the book, um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, Zen mind, beginner's mind, uh, by Shunru Suzuki. He, in there, he quotes a story from, uh, a Zen master, uh, I think Tozen, Tozen mm-hmm. is his name. And he talks about the, the blue mountain and the white cloud. I don't know if you remember reading that, but so, um, the, it's, it goes something like this. It's like, uh, the, uh, the blue mountain is the father of the white cloud. The white cloud is the father of the blue mountain. All right. All day long they depend on each other without being dependent. And then and then he goes on and says this is like relationships. Um, you know, uh, the white cloud and the blue mountain depend on each other, mm-hmm. but the white cloud is not bothered by the blue mountain. Exactly. And the blue mountain is not bothered by the white right. cloud. They are, you know, they are quite independent, yes. but dependent. So the, that, that's the term we go to, interdependent. So each one provides, yeah. you know, a, a, provides the, for the existence of the other, but they're not dependent upon each other. 
right to exist yeah exactly and so for that that just really that was kind of an eye-opener for me i was like wow yes exactly you know because we do need to have i feel like i i do i do want to have intimacy and a connection mm-hmm. uh with somebody and that's important uh and so i want to depend on somebody but i don't want to be dependent <laughs> on them or or and then be dependent on me yeah you know so important yeah um and, and you and you brought up the the your a little bit about your venturing into um, uh, at least some well I'll just say it the beginner's mind uh, which is part of Zen Buddhism the yeah. the mm-hmm. idea of um, the beginner's mind um, is always open and, and teachable right and whereas the expert um, doesn't have it you know can't assimilate or accommodate new new information right. yeah. it, or it's more difficult to anyway. Yeah, um, exactly. And one of the things that uh, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of us share when we look at this is, is the idea of how important meditation becomes in our life. And are you, are you comfortable? Are you okay to talk about sort of this, this transition oh, that you, you yeah. made this past year or so? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, beginner's mind. It, it's, yeah, it's just <laughs> quite, it's a great concept. It's so simple yet. It's, it's just, it's such a great concept. And um, you know that in the beginner's mind, uh, the the there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few, <laughs> and uh, and and that has led in that in in addition with being introduced to refuge recovery, uh, has led me to start meditating in in my life, and uh, and meditation has been for me, not only do I do, am I able to get some some peace and serenity out of it at immediately after I've, I've completed a meditation, but also the whole point about it. And this is kind of how, why refuge recovery incorporates meditation mm-hmm. into its program is that it's a training of the mind. You know, you're working to train your mind to be able to stay present mm-hmm. have present time awareness yes. and be able to focus on just one thing. And instead of having that barrage of, sensory overload and information coming in and and out of your mind all the time you're able to stop it and be able to focus just on one thing you know and that's part of meditation is concentration and focusing on uh, to help train your mind so when when you are feeling uh when you are having it you know when you are triggered or you have and you're having a craving you're craving for something uh, to be more than or not enough of, you know, you know or, or, or get away from something, you're able to, to recognize that and accept it for what it is, get through it uh, in the moment. And, you know, although you wish it would be different, you, you acknowledge that and uh, you, you let go of that aversion to having to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? So it's all about training the mind to kind of be in that state uh, to where you're not getting overwhelmed by by a barrage of uh, of thoughts, you know, and so for me, that's really what it's been. I feel like uh, it's a time for me to quiet myself and just mm-hmm. you know re 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 energize before before I start the day, and and also it's it's helped me to have just a little bit more present time awareness and yeah. be able to focus on things and not get bothered so much by. Just this the, the the flow of of a barrage of thoughts in and out mm. that go on every day, you know. So and you and you know, you've been actually leading a, a refuge recovery meeting for a while now. I mean, I don't know how long you've been doing this. Yeah, we, I, I yeah. apologize, but it's oh seems, no, we've been doing it. Yeah, since July, so it's like yeah. six months, eight months or so. Yeah, <laughs> eight, eight months. Yeah, yeah eight months. Uh, yeah. It, it's, 
and and what a uh, there's a practice there too it's like how i look at aftercare and, and i look at after, aftercare as a practice right um uh, about holding space and i don't look at it as in the sense of treatment even though it falls under that right um i see having an uh, the aspect and the dynamic of an aftercare group even though it can become that because people struggle and and they need to they need to process certain kind of information and and be in a, hopefully in a in a healthy loving place that that can have you know um give objective feedback to them to do that. And so I, I see aftercare as something really different than I do treatment as, mm-hmm. as being that, uh, being yeah. a community. And so, um, the idea with refuge recovery, I kind of see the same thing, even though, um, the idea of meditation for, and I'm, I'm going to say something, so I'm just going to say, I'm saying it really <laughs> stupid. So I'm, I'm the Western mind. Uh-huh. And yeah. I, I mean, I, whatever construct it is, struggles right. with some of these simple ideas. Yeah. Of no, meditation. I understand what you're saying. And, yeah. And I know it's to say Western mind is labeling it a certain way, but that, right. that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm a complete bozo for saying this. So and I'll just take the right. responsibility for that. But there's such a struggle with meditation and it's such something so simple. And, and the thing I like about refuge recovery is that it, because it's a group meditation, everyone becomes, they do their best to become present. Yeah. And, and I think that can well, maybe just in itself can seem intimidating, right. and, and I wonder if, if you know, that the idea of that sometimes, you know, people, uh, it is pretty a vulnerable experience, right? Sitting in a group with people mm-hmm. and 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 being quiet and being present in that moment, which I think is the most one of the most beautiful things in the world to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to um, someone else about this recently that I, I can remember the first time I started meditating in groups and some of them were large. Um, this was uh, during my first um, uh, graduate or, or master's degree. That that experience though of being in a room full of people and maybe 50 to 100 a few times that that experience of, of group meditation or or saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, chanting a mantra together was mm-hmm. so uh, invigorating and um, almost feeling like self disappears and become part of something so much bigger or something so much so expansive right that i i, I sort of lose myself or i that what i think of as paul mm-hmm. it seems to disappear right. and that i mean the only I've, you know I, for the few refuge recovery meetings i've done i have that ex- same experience and i know so i tie them all together right yeah in, in certain ways even like with the desert trips that i've done right we've done yeah. group experiences and that and they, i get that same kind of feeling of being present with people in the moment yeah i think i definitely agree with that i think that uh doing the meditation at the start of the refuge recovery meeting does it brings everybody in present and, and aware of, of that that's what they're there and in, in the moment uh-huh. and it is powerful and when we get done with the meditation everybody's just kind of like oh okay <laughs> now let, let's talk about some stuff yeah. you know and uh yeah it's been it's just been a great uh tool for my recovery and i, I yeah i i really gravitate to a lot of the principles um of refuge recovery and it's again it's just been a great uh tool for me to have to just augment my my recovery um helps me continue to work on principles of being mindful you know non-attached appreciation mm-hmm. is a, is a is a big one and and one that I'm working on recently too is just um uh i want to say it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, comp- uh compassion 
uh, response, compassionate response ability, not responsibility like you're taking responsibility. For right, something, no, response I understand. Ability, ability. Yeah. It's compassionate. It's... Yeah, to respond, be able to respond compassionately to pain and suffering that that life is undoubtedly going to throw at us. Yes, and just, just to embrace that with with kind of a kindness and a care and an understanding and an acceptance, and not try to push that pain or unpleasantness away, right. but to just be able to, to, to process it and deal with it. And again, and re- recognizing that the impermanence of it, of it all, that this is, you know, this is not going to be forever. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so those kind of principles just really res- resonate for me. And they're, they're principles that just get reinforced through, through re- refuge recovery. Yeah. So it's been great. Well, and one of the things that, that you and I, and I know we've, we've talked about this in the past is this, the idea and the notion behind, um, uh, non-appreciation attachment. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. That, that whole idea of being able to hold something but not have to be attached to it, which is right. kind of this, the you know, the understanding, imp- um, what was that? I can't remember the, the word you just used, impermanence or... Um, uh, yeah, imp- the impermanence. Of yes, it. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, that that I- idea that you know that everything that nothing's forever. Nothing is forever. That, and, and it's, yes, everything's and, constant. And, and to believe it is 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 sort of living in more of a fixed, uh, you know, um, paradigm, especially in the past. And right. This, this kind of leads me to ask you the, this other question because uh, um, the idea of when we begin or that process of beginning to understand what the victim narrative is yes. because it's all based on a past story um do, do, do you remember sort of that 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 process or the moments when you began to sort of transcend or transform that that victim narrative yeah i i, I do i think in fact i i remember it was a i was having a session with you in fact and i think i was bitching about um how how everything was reminding me of, of what a failure I was, you know, and and every you know everything around me. And you were like, "Well, how about you? How about you rewrite that story? You know, how about you start looking at the positive things? You know." Um, and I think I even said something. It was something in relationship to to Becky that, oh, you know, I just our relationship was, you know, I, I can't believe I I messed that up and something along those lines. And and you were like. Uh, well, why don't you why don't you change that and, and think about something that a positive that came through that? And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, I need to start rewriting those stories that I've been telling myself. Uh-huh. You know, because like I said earlier, uh, our relationship wasn't always terrible. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of good times and yes. good memories. And so, yeah. wh- I started to really from that moment on, I started to try to when I was having a negative thought or or again living in moments of regret or. Um, moments of shame or self-pity i would uh try to replace that with a positive memory you know what i mean and really it started there Uh is just trying to replace those negative memories with if i was gonna now i'm and it's evolved to where i don't i don't focus on the past anymore Uh you know what i mean sure the past is always going to be there but I want to be rewriting my narrative, rewriting my story yes. in the present yes. time, you know, and moving forward. And yeah. yeah, the past is there, but and if it comes up, I'm going to do that. Try to think of it in a positive light, or, uh-huh. or the opportunity that I had to grow. But I'm not going to dwell on it anymore. I was dwelling on it so so heavily because again, it was such a uh, um, a painful loss of career and marriage and everything. Yes. And um, and yeah, and really, I guess that's when it started is just trying to get out of that victim stance of focusing on all the negativity that's happened to me, yeah. you know, 
and that deep down and looking at really and through work the work at the in IOP where we have to examine our core values mm-hmm. and what we really believe about ourselves and mm-hmm. our perceptions about ourselves and our environment um, and looking at those and being able to realize what I truly believe about myself you know I am good enough you know um, yeah you know, it's just it's it having a, a, a Stuart Smalley moment there. You know, yeah, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Yeah, and gosh exactly. darn it, or yeah, people, people like, like me. people like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I just started to realize that. Yeah, and I'm going to start writing. You know, rewriting this narrative. Mm-hmm. My story didn't have to end in Dallas. You know, it didn't. It didn't end. That wasn't it. You know, the chapter. You know, I can write a new one, a new story, yeah. and unfold it. And so, yeah, but the victim stance is extremely powerful and and it's what kept me in definitely kept me in addiction for so many years and and being able to break free from that and recognizing when you're starting to fall back into it and getting right back out of it it, Uh it's very powerful yeah i think there's 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 a relational dynamic between victim stance and unresolved grief and loss Mm -hmm. that the when we don't resolve and work through grief and and sadness and and the end of things, whether, you know, it be a relationship or a death or, um, you know, even a loss of a job. Yeah. Um, when we don't work through that, or career, I mean, yeah. we don't do that. We, the victim keeps living and breathing and it, it becomes, um, it becomes an entity almost within itself that we just can go back and it's like hitting that button. Yep. This is the reason why I do what I do. This is the reason why I am who I am. I'm the victim of all these things in my life, even though when we know eventually it all comes back to ourselves. And then it becomes the, the power of taking accountability, meaning that I truly am responsible for everything I've created, even though it would surely be nice if I could blame it on someone else. It doesn't get me anywhere do I want to be, especially to a place of having any joy or contentment in my life. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When, when when you real yeah, when you when you really start taking accountability that, you know, you're responsible for your own feelings and your own actions and it's not any external person, place or thing, uh it can be very powerful to help propel you to move to move forward, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. And yeah. All right. All right, we'll uh let's shift gears just slightly and and uh, I'm curious, um, even though you've, you've kind of explored this a little bit already, but when, when you, you look at your life now, and wh- what is it that, that you find or you, brings you the most joy? What, what are the things that bring you joy in life today? Well, I think that I've been able to, in recovery, I've been able to get back to doing things that I love and skiing being one of them. Um, yes. love skiing and so that's and that's something that I the whole time I after I moved back from Dallas um, I didn't I here I am in Utah and I didn't ski at all you know that whole time it wasn't until just last uh, last year that I that I started doing it again and it's something that I love and so skiing definitely brings me a lot of joy um, for sure and anything you know mountain biking too during the summer has uh-huh. been great uh, and just, you know, staying connected with people, you know, really is, has been what's been, uh, what I found that, that, that does bring me the most joy and, and, and being with, you know, being with family, of course, you know, uh-huh. now being in recovery, you know, 
it's it's weird, you know. Family actually, they want to be around you. You know what I mean? They actually they want you to be, you know. There. I mean, they would always tolerate your presence, right? No, that's funny. right. But now they, but now they want they want you to be part of their sure. lives, and, and I'm glad that I can be present for them and be yeah. part of their lives. And so, definitely, family brings me a lot of joy. And uh, you know, just uh, I'm looking forward to the upcoming softball season with 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 right, our recovery program. I mean, that always is is fun for for the summer. Uh-huh. And uh, but I think what what's brought recently what's brought me the most joy in, and I think this is something that I did. We, you know, we talked about you know vulnerability, and um, recently what's brought me the most joy is I've I was able to be vulnerable enough. To reconnect uh, with some of my good friends uh, from dental school. Uh, yes. Um, which I told, which I said earlier when when I you know basically when I left Dallas I didn't want to do I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody because of that shame and guilt. Oh, and the grief uh, associated and the, and with the grief it, yes. associated with it. And so I basically just went off the grid essentially, went off the radar. Didn't want didn't want to have to do you know didn't want anybody to know about anything. Mm-hmm. Which again. <laughs> You know, I'm human. I make mistakes, and this is what happened in my life. And I don't need to feel ashamed about it. Um, it's just I've made some choices, and that's what happened. But I, I was not at a place to be able to do that, and I have, wasn't in a place to do that for a long time. And it was only through, uh, you know, going through recovery and, and learning about what vulnerability is, and that vul- being vulnerable isn't a bad thing. You know, you you hear that term, and I when I first heard it, I was like, well, let's doesn't sound good at all well, being vulnerable is <laughs> negative right you know well it's a sign of weakness it's, it's exactly right you know just like processing yeah. grief you know you know that that because it can be uncomfortable and and if people are uncomfortable with someone somebody grieving something or processing through it or and being open and vulnerable that that idea of weakness being associated with it came about because people were uncomfortable experiencing that that's the weird part, right? I mean, if we just say, why did it become an idea that it was a sign or, uh, you know, of, of weakness? And right. it came from just the inability to be able to be open to the process and to be sit in it, mm-hmm. to sit in those feelings, to be able to express them. Um, and I think it's Brene Brown that I, I mean, I've always felt this, but she put it so, I think, eloquently that, that um, vulnerability is a sign of courage, Right, and and it is truly is that that idea of being able to show up and be real and be in the moment with people mm-hmm. and be able to express whatever's going on for us and not have to filter it because we're worried about what people think. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that's the key thing. Is I was for so long, I was so hung up that the that the these these friends of mine are just gonna, they're going to think I'm a loser because I wasn't able to accomplish certain things you know what i mean you had and, a story and i had a, and i was so worried about um yeah that they 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 weren't going to they were going to they were going to think of me as a loser mm-hmm. you know and um yeah a lot of shame and guilt associated with that too but i didn't want to be i didn't want to admit my mistakes you know what i mean the mistakes uh-huh. were there but I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to own them. You know what I mean. Right. I just wanted everything to go away. You right. know? But by doing that, you cut yourself off from people you truly care about. You know, and that's yes. the and that's the problem. Yeah. And that was always been. And, and since being in recovery, that had always been kind of nagging at me. Like, oh man, I really I miss those guys and I miss those relationships and I wonder how they're doing and 
and they probably wonder what the hell happened to me. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I'm sure they'd heard through grape, the grapevine or whatever, kind of what was going on. And but I mean, you know. And then you almost feel you feel shame and guilt because you're not reaching out to them, but yet you're scared to because of the shame and guilt. Right. You know. And so yeah, being so being vulnerable. Being able to be open and honest and admitting uh, that, yeah, I'm human. I'm just another bozo on the bus. Just another bozo. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, you're going to think about me what you will, but, you know, I know that I'm a good person and I I can share openly with, with what's happened in my life and what's, um, and what I feel and not feel, not feel bad about yeah. for doing it. Yeah. And I was able to do that in, with, uh, with, with, again, reconnecting with my dental school buddies this winter. Uh-huh. And it started with reconnecting with my buddy, Sean, that I've known since we were 12 years old. It was uh-huh. really him that got me on the track to start being vulnerable. Right. He called me out of the blue one day and said, uh, you know, he'd gone through some life changes as well. Uh-huh. Knew I was in town, wanted to get together for, for lunch. And we ended up meeting for dinner. And from then on, he's been my ski buddy this whole time. And and uh, and we've really we've reconnected that that friendship, and through him, okay. I've reconnected with uh, other people that we've grown up with as too. I've gotten gotten back in connection with them, and then it was Sean's picture of us skiing posted on Facebook that prompted one of my dental school buddies to reach out to Sean <laughs> to get a hold of me. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And uh, and Sean, you know, said, "Hey, this guy reached out. He wants to get a hold of you. Should I give him your number?" And again, it was. Uh, a, gr- a really good friend of mine from dental school, and I was like, oh, I don't know, am I ready for that? Do I really want? Do I want to do that? And I'm like, What do you, th-? you know? And then I'm just like, What? You're an idiot. Let's just do this. You know? Why? What are you hiding? You know? What are you hiding from anymore? You know? Still, you know? Right, just right. it is what it is, and, uh, and get it out into it. the light. Get get out in the open, right? Yeah. And so I called up. I called up uh, Pasquale, and we and we reconnected, and they were all coming out to Deer Valley for a ski weekend, and I was able to reconnect with all of those guys, and it was like the best. <laughs> I mean, just because I'd felt that loss of of the relationships, uh-huh. and you know, and. <laughs> Surprise, surprise, they didn't think I was a loser. You know what I mean? They were like... That was an inside job, right? Because we exactly, like to use that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. They, they couldn't have been more supportive, couldn't uh-huh. have been more happy to see me, just glad I was doing well and uh-huh. that I'm healthy. And uh, I, again, I, I shared this in aftercare group so much I got emotional and, and teared up a bit, uh-huh. was that I here I was, I was on the mountain and... Uh, I'm, I was skiing down and you were in nature and it's beautiful and you're always, you know, it's always great to be in nature uh-huh. and I'm skiing down the mountain and I'm surrounded by, uh, by these guys who I love. I'm doing something that, that I love and I just was overwhelmed with this joy oh, Yes, and yeah. I, 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 I'm giggling to myself as I'm skiing down the mountain <laughs> and it was just, it was like the best experience. Yeah. So yeah, that has brought me a lot of joy yeah. in my life is I reconnecting. Feel it. it's, just, I'm, I'm, it's like, expl- it's like exploding in the room. <laughs> Right now. Yeah, I love it. That that is so cool. I mean, yeah. that is so beautiful. That the idea of reconnecting and being open and vulnerable and just showing up. I mean, that, of course, showing up is it's like you can't do anything. Nothing happens unless we show up. Right. right? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. So. By the way, if talk about full circle. I mean, I know this happened recently because you sh- you shared it. Is that, you know, you are actually going to go back and start doing some dental work? Yeah, ex- you know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've, I've got a journey. Yeah, it's been a journey. Yeah, and I am going to get back uh, on track, and so it should be good. Yeah. <laughs> 
because it's a component of uh, that I've really, uh, you know, I've got all this training, and I really feel like uh, I, I don't want it, and it's still a passion of mine, and, yeah. I, and I don't, and I don't want it to go. To, I feel like I can offer so much, yeah. because I have been very highly trained. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and, and although uh, I, you know, I definitely the job that I do right now uh, is definitely rewarding, which involves you know helping people. Uh, obtain, you know, uh, financing through their insurance company so they can go to treatment. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So they can afford the cost of, of, of getting treatment. Right, getting help. Um, and, uh, and so that's rewarding in itself. But again, it's, what, it's not what I was trained to do, you know. Right. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting back in there. That's so. exciting. That's exciting. Yeah. Okay. Um, even though we probably already talked about this from different aspects, you know, um, the uh, the idea of how you um, connect or ha- or to faith, hope, um, God, higher power, spirituality, what, whatever that looks like. How would is there? I mean, we've talked about this through meditation and the experience of nature, and, and you know, you and I probably share um, some similar threads here. Generally, how do you define that in your life in in some type of connection? Do you, do you have a formal way of doing it, or or how how would you, how do you do you see that? Yeah, to to connect. Uh, well, I think it all starts with, you know, having that belief uh, that there's something greater than yourself. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Which it, which is so for me, it's been so helpful on so many levels because one, it helps me get out of that. Uh, nobody, you know, the, the victim stance of nobody loves me and, and, uh, and, and I'm not good enough because uh-huh. you know what? There, there is something out there that's greater than myself that does. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And so there's that, and and um, so I can't use that as a victim stance. You know, I can't use that as part of my victim stance. Is that yeah, right. because there is something out there that exists greater than myself? And so yeah, I do have a higher power, and it's spiritual in nature. And um, and uh, yeah, I connect through prayer, mm-hmm. and um, and also through the meditation is a way to connect to that spirituality. But I, I kind of. Uh, I kind of compartment. I guess a compartmentalize wouldn't be the right word, but meditation for me is kind of an internal spiritualization. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Where I do have a higher power, which is kind of outside of myself, <laughs> right? But the the meditation component and and the work that I kind of do in refuge recovery uh-huh. is all, all feels like it's internal. It all feels like it's coming from me. Uh-huh. But I do. But I definitely believe in in a power greater than myself. <laughs> you know? Okay. So I, I'm 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 going to piggyback a little bit here because I like what you just said, and and um, I there's this experience for me with meditation, and I I, I personally see meditation and prayers as the same, mm-hmm. but the idea and the reason why I'm I'm going to explain why, especially with um, meditating with a group, mm-hmm. is all of a sudden I feel connected to something that's bigger than me because yeah. it's a group of people yeah. that are doing the same thing in the moment and being present. Right. And so, I mean, I, it makes, it makes complete sense when I, when, when I'm in the moment with it. Um, and, and this is sound a little strange too, that, I mean, this is sound strange in my mind. When I was alone in the desert, when I would go down on, on my, my walkabouts or yeah. <laughs> vision quests, whatever, and spend three to five days, you know, out in the desert alone, this, I used to feel so connected to everything. I, I felt part of, and I, I didn't feel any separation between me and the sand and the, the cactus and the yucca plants and 
the ephedra, which there's right. tons of it down there. Uh-huh. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if I ran out of coffee, I'd just chew on a little right. ephedra. Right, chew on some leaves. <laughs> anyway. Um, so the, the idea of being that it's about my willingness to immerse myself in something. Right. Whether it be prayer, meditation, a group process, or just even in, in a moment like this, being able to be show up and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, but And so I, I kind of have learned to, in some ways, separate this out, that it's the, the connection to something is just me. It's me being willing to be open yeah. and vulnerable and connect to it. So yeah, it makes sense. the desert and nature yeah. being the same way. And, I, and I've heard you say that. I mean, the idea when you were describing being on the, the ski slope with your friends around you yeah. and doing something you love in that moment of the yeah. joy, just almost bliss. When you were describing, yeah. I felt bliss. And yeah. to me, that's what spirituality exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I definitely can, I definitely relate to that. All right. For sure. So last thing then we'll, we'll get to is, and I told you yeah. about it beforehand is oh, the yeah. idea of uh, music and, right. and, 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 and we're talking about this in this, from the sense of songs and, um, this idea of if there's something that represented, you know, you, or if there was a song or something or, or a piece of music. Because I, I, I said I do use the word song a lot, and I think that well, you know, somebody may have a concerto that they love or something like that. So right. I, I, I realize that that I, it needs to open it, open this up a little bit. So, um, but if there was a playlist, you know, for about you or for your life, is there a song or a couple songs that may represent that for you? Um, yeah, I mean, music is is uh, <laughs> it's great. I mean. <laughs> I don't. You can't go through life without appreciating music. Yes, I mean, and, I, yeah. and I appreciate so many, so many different forms of it. Um, lately, I've been really caught on, and this is kind of fed into the whole me, re, you know, rewriting my narrative in the present, in the present time. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it's a band called Dispatch. Um, they're out of Massachusetts area, mm-hmm. uh, New England area, and they have a song called "Only the Wild Ones." And in the song, it's like, um, you know, it talks about only the wild ones give you something and never want it back. And then it also goes on to say, uh, no, no place to go but everywhere, you know. Huh. And that's kind of how I feel. It's like I have no place to go but everywhere, you know. And yeah, it just that really resonates to me. And then, of course, you know, classic Bob Marley, One Love. I mean, it, I mean that's just, you can't not, you know. Think of that when I think about music that that I that I hope uh, I can you know that that I embrace or embody it would be that you know and uh, I don't Tom Petty you know Wildflowers is great too that and, whole album is great by the way yeah, yeah. I love that. oh yeah oh yeah exactly so yeah I don't know you know some of those things that sounds like you know, <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe a little yeah maybe a little Thank you for sharing Sunday. Excuse me, it's Saturday. Saturday. Thank you for sharing your Saturday morning with us today. Again, very honored. I'm I'm honored myself to have you here, and uh, we'll uh, we'll leave you today as we do with uh, all these uh, podcasts with a little bit of Jonah Osborne. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. 